I will be speaking on professionalism today. And to be honest with you, um, when we put the program together, we knew that this is a very important topic. However, the way in which we apply professionalism is, is quite tricky because professionalism touches on so many different things from um, your perspective, from your prior education, from um, the societies that you belong to, um, given that there are a number of professionalist societies uh, that actuaries belong to globally. And in order to try and pull together some thoughts um, and ideas, what we've done is we have looked at a number of publications that have been put out by the various actual um, institutes and um, societies, as well as European Union, in order to, to see what some of the themes are that are coming through and things that we as actuaries should consider going forward. So some of the papers where we've drawn um, information from is the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries, the Society of Actuaries, um, the Academy of Actuaries, and so forth, um, to try and get a sense of what are the aspects that they're highlighted need to be considered as actuaries, and how do we practically um, implement some of these. Now, um, that's of course easier said than done, because in um, the excitement of using information to better understand what drives people and identifying linkages between information, we want as much information, both structured and unstructured. However, that doesn't take away our responsibilities as actuaries as to how we interpret and inform um, the products, solutions and methods in which we communicate with our customers, policyholders, um, or even citizens. So I trust you um, will join me in this um, rather challenging um, debate we're going to be having today. So <clears throat> for me, I think that you know, um, in today's society, there is so much belief that a computer algorithm can solve all our problems. However, there's still <laughs> much that we don't understand. And especially if it is a situation where the individuals that are using the algorithms don't understand the consequences thereof, we need to, we need to understand um, how best we can apply professional judgment in these circumstances. So in this cartoon you can see that um, um, it is <laughs> clearly the Java app is, is, is replacing everything except the, the elements of concern to this new employer. And, and, and this is um, definitely some of the aspects that are currently driving the conversations around the use of big data, as well as um, the way in which it's implemented in terms of insights. So by doing a literature review on um, all these documents that, that I've mentioned, um, and they they are referenced at the back of the, the presentation. We've come up with a number of themes. So the first being transparency, second fairness and discrimination, governance, education, accountability, and privacy at a very high level. Now, um, this list may not be exhaustive, and I think as we explore 
this field and explore the applications of this in areas outside of the traditional areas that we've, we've worked in, such as insurance, banking, health, pensions, so forth, and continue working in, in areas such as retail, um, telcos, um, defense, etc., I, I do believe that these lists and the application thereof may actually become more exhaustive, as well as the way in which we determine what is fair and what is not fair would also change. So if we start off with transparency, um, my slides are very wordy, so I apologize for that in advance. But the reason for this is we, we have um, tried to extract very specific themes and very specific items underlying each one of the themes from some of the documents so that we ensure that we don't um, miss any of the nuances that, that are being um, put forward by the other um, professional bodies. So first of all, um, in terms of algorithmics, systems and using that in big data, given that this is more and more being used in terms of decision making, not just in the private areas um, and the private part of the business, but also in, in the public sectors, the consequences for individuals, organizations and societies, of course, incredibly important. And that's why professionalism needs to be considered um, as carefully um, as it does. However, um, because of the properties of the scale, the cap um, capabilities to handle the complex data sets, as well as the autonomous learning that gets applied to these systems in order to make connections and identify trends that we never knew existed, which in itself is very powerful, we mustn't underestimate um, that false correlations can be made and undue consequence can be applied in terms of that. One of the ones that always sticks with me is, and I, I mean, given that most of you would have had, um, you know, probably some form of big data um, advanced analytics um, in your daily jobs, you would have, most of you would have heard about the correlation between eating ice cream and shark attacks, right? That in itself is, I mean, it's such a silly example, but it's the one that sticks in my mind because I personally absolutely love eating ice cream. It's definitely on my last meal list. And um, given my love for ice cream, I mean, I would be very concerned about being attacked by a shark, but we know that the causality underlying that has got nothing to do with the linkages between um, eating ice cream and shark attacks. So understanding those elements are incredibly important. The lack of transparency risks um, therefore um, end up resulting in undermining the meaning and scrutiny of accountability, which is a significant concern in relation to decision-making process that can of course have considerable impact on fundamental human rights, or else on, for example, the shark's rights, people being concerned when ice cream sales are increasing as to whether or not they're going to be more shark attacks. And within that, trans transparency critically constitutes to fairness. Because by having transparency, one could identify where there are elements of unfairness being applied to a particular individual, society, or broader community, or community, or micro-community group. That is why, in terms of recent trends in big data, emphasis needs to be placed on explaining the reason why, 
why is there this correlation between eating ice cream and shark attacks? Because by understanding that question and understanding how the data gets used and the transparency around that as well as the algorithms that are being applied and what is the difference between causality and correlation, we can start making better decisions. So I've included a few case studies in, um, in the, my presentation today. And the first one I want to take you through is Amazon's um, facial recognition. Now, in itself, um, this is definitely um, an advancement in terms of using algorithms in order to drive um, technology. And I mean, we've seen this type of technology being used in medical diagnosis for x-rays and so forth, which is, which is fantastic. But unfortunately, um, sometimes it gets used inappropriately. And in terms of where this has been applied is, is in the U US in terms of law enforcement agencies. You can see at the bottom of the slide where the Orlando Police Department in Washington and a few others started using it. However, there were fundamental issues with the application um, of this facial recognition technology. Which is why San Francisco was the first city to ban it in May 2019. And the reason for this was the way in which the facial recognition was trained was based on white male faces. And therefore, when it came to identifying people of color or women, the application thereof was incorrect. And because of that, the societal impacts was that um, this could lead to a bias for anyone that was not within the white male cohort being disproportionately held for questioning um, by law enforcement agencies or wrongfully arrested, which talks to the rights and fairness of those population groups. Government in the US therefore ordered that um, further testing was needed um, and that there will be further voting in order to assess when it gets implemented. They've also assured the public that um, there would be notice given before its reintroduction. So this is where something wonderful where it's been applied in areas of medical technology when applied in a, in a social context goes incredibly wrong. Fairness and discrimination. Um, so I must be honest, um, somehow I think only, only the monkey is going to be okay in climbing that tree. Somehow I think between the, the um, I mean, the elephant might get there, but the fish has no hope whatsoever. But this is unfortunately what happens in big data if it's applied um, inaccurately. And the reason for that is how do you differentiate between what is fair and what is not fair, depending on the context, depending on your perspective? Fairness can mean very different things for different people. As actuaries, um, it's our job to, um, especially if we work in pricing or reserving, to ensure that our risk pools are sufficient, that they are robust, that there's appropriate professional judgment applied when determining our reserving. However, if those same elements are incorporated in order to risk rate, at what point do we build in inherent unfairness into our pricing. We've seen this happen in, in credit scoring where um, certain population 
groups are based on, on um, prior data sets that are used in order to um, to train models are discriminated against and how do we ensure that we find the balance between managing risk and ensuring future fairness of products, solutions and opportunity. And these aren't easy questions to answer because are you unfair to the individual or are you unfair to the pool? And I don't think it's necessarily a one or all. It's about being cognizant of the drivers underlying those elements are, that produces unfairness and trying to strip that out from your data sets as well as from your training algorithms as much as possible. <clears throat> so the fundamental components underpinning um, res uh, sorry, responsible systems as well as algorithmic processes should seek to minimize this potential for unfair and maximize their potential to be fair. And when looking at it from a social justice lens, it's important to ensure that algorithms don't systematically disadvantage or even discriminate against different social groups or um, demographics. When looking at it um, slightly differently, and, and I have alluded to this um, already, but there are different ways in which elements of discrimination or unfairness can actually be applied, which could be, for example, in the case of an individual, and we've touched on that in terms of the facial recognition software not being appropriately um, applied, or else to a particular group of individuals, such as credit scoring, as an example, or else to a society as a whole. Um, and therefore, the outcomes of these algorithmic processes need to be understood, as well as the consequence and the implications of how it gets used. Because often, I mean, in the same case where you, you can use very granular data in order to understand risk, your ability to apply that when creating premiums um, you want to make sure that you have a true understanding of what those drivers of risk are rather than creating false positives or correlations between multi-dimensional variables which can lead to unfairness or discrimination. The next case study is, is quite interesting. So we all know that there are so many different dimensions in which analytics, predictive um, machine learning and, and so forth can be applied. And one of the areas um, that is quite advanced is how it applies to the workforce in terms of measuring productivity, in terms of ensuring that there's an understanding of how an organization's um, workforce matches their strategy, especially when we're looking at different ways of working um, and, and how work is evolving over time. So Amazon took it one step further where they said, well, given that they are a very um, prominent organization, getting lots and lots of CVs all the time, how do they use um, AI in order to sift through these, all these CVs that they get? And as you can see from, from these headlines, they are not looking very good. So specifically being accused of being sexist in terms of their hiring processes. 
if we go into this case study in a little bit um, deeper, we can see what they did was they took all these job applications and they pushed it through this AI program that would create a rating system, five stars. You would want to be um, the best candidates, have five stars, and the, and the lowest rate, um, ranking candidates would be one star. And this um, AI system was trained on data that was submitted by applicants over a 10-year period. However, the data that was fed into the system mostly came from men. So this was also an unsupervised um, um, algorithm, so it continued to teach itself. And um, what it found was it, it actually found male candidates to be more preferable. Then what happened was that it started using um, text recognition, and as soon as it saw women in the CV, it basically threw it out. So at no point did the algorithm consider a general neutral way in order to accumulate the information and review the CVs um, appropriately given that. Given, um, given the fact that this was actually um, implemented in this particular way, the project was eventually abandoned. Now, in my mind, um, I would imagine that there was great excitement about using AI in order to remove discrimination by rating these CVs. I mean, because there's always systematic bias in any information that anyone reads. So you would think that a computer system would, be, would have less elements of bias in it. However, the way in which the algorithm was trained unfortunately had a negative consequence by unfairly discriminating against women. So it's so important that the data that is used to train the models, as well as the context in which it's being used, be analyzed and to try and understand that why question. Why am I getting all my female candidates are getting ones or rejected? Um, and um, because, I mean, that in itself should indicate that there's an inherent problem within the algorithm. So these are just some of the things that we need to consider, that common sense doesn't override an algorithm. There's always an element of, of assessing whether or not the, the results that are being produced is valid and appropriate, as well as that the right algorithm, algorithm is, is actually being used to get the answer for the purpose that one is trying to solve for. <clears throat> Another one um, <clears throat> that was that came up. This one's quite well known. Is um, Google's photo tanking blunder, which was found to be racist. Um, who has heard of this one? A few, a few nods. Again, um, probably a program that someone was very excited about in order to. Um, you know, to get the public involved in machine learning, and unfortunately it went quite badly. Um, so um, for those of you who don't know, um, a new photo apps were, were basically produced where it allowed people to um, start tagging and arranging some of, the, some of the photos. So for example, pictures of cars would be arranged in an album called Cars, 
and this tag f feature would then learn as more information would come in and it would refine its me method of recognition and categorization of the projects. Now, unfortunately, what did happen is that some candidates who submitted their information, um, black individuals, got categorized as, as gorillas, which is very unfortunate. And um, the, the important part for me here is to also understand the consequence of the additional processes that get used for some of these type of programs. So as an example is the quality of the photos being taken, identifying whether or not it has enough specificity in order to identify the, the facial recognition algorithms, looking at skin tones, lighting, um, and how that gets applied is, is important when training a number of these algorithms. So understand the limitations of your, the rest of your technology in capturing information when building these programs. Ultimately, um, what ended up happening was that Google attempted to fix it, but ended up removing the tags. And they, they are working on longer-term fixes to try and work around the challenges around the um, specificity of their ability to do facial recognition for all race types. So, I mean, based on some of these case studies, I mean, I've shared with you, I think for me, um, each one of them has an element of professionalism that we need to apply and, and consider and think about how best would, if I was in their situation, how would I handle it? And sometimes it is just asking some basic questions as to whether or not all the right steps have been followed in order to ensure that unintended consequences are mitigated as much as possible. Because I think in every single case, there was no intent to do harm. It was an intent to drive technology forward. However, because of the harm that was done, all these projects have been put on the back burner, which is unfortunate and actually limits our ability to progress. And we as actuaries, as we continue to redefine um, our methodologies, algorithms for risk rating, as well as identifying risk and managing risk, irrespective of what area of work we're in, we need to think about what the unintended consequence could be and how that would influence our employers if it had to go wrong, ourselves professionally, or else the actual society of South Africa, or else the professional label of actuary as a whole. Because I do believe so much trust is put in us as actuaries that we just need to think twice about the way in which we implement this and understand the limitations of the algorithms as well as the limitations of the information sets, whether it's an image or whether it is a data set and how it gets used and implemented. Governance. So with data growing at this exponential rate, legislation is finding it incredibly difficult to keep up. One of the additional challenges around governance is different societies and different countries have very different perspectives around how data should be used. So in general, um, we find that the Europeans are quite strict 
in terms of how information gets used, collected and so forth, while other um, countries are a little bit more, um, uh, more open to the use of personal information, um, such as the US. However, it is, it is changing. And understanding this, especially for multinational companies, is incredibly important. But the challenge we have is that industry standards um, for best practice are really non-existent. They're not as defined as they need to be and therefore provide lack of clarity. The interpretation of existing law is also uncertain in terms of the algorithmic outcomes and of course the, um, the judicial experience in terms of case law is, is also in short supply. So with this rapid growth of data, both structured and unstructured, um, we must make sure that it doesn't limit the rights and legal protection of citizens. And again, that's where I believe we as actuaries have a fundamental um, role to play. Governance, uh, government will also need to understand and consider um, the currency privacy rules and um, the rules of access and ownership of personal information. So, in terms of um, multinational organizations and how this gets applied, we, we have seen that there's been a number of laws that have been passed in order to try and manage this a little bit better going forward. However, given, that, given the absence of case law, I do think it is still a bit of a challenge in terms of identifying how best that gets applied. One of the interesting um, uses of, of governance within the actuarial field is, as I understand in the US, um, where actuaries are performing work for health insurers um, or even for life insurers where unstructured data sets that are purchased are being used um, in their um, benefit design, pricing, um, targeting, etc. They are actually required by the regulators to assess um, and provide um, certainty around the algorithms and that the algorithms have gone through some kind of authentication process. Now um, in terms of um, the application thereof, there's still uncertainty in terms of the, how that actually gets used. So as an example, regulators would be quite comfortable in when looking at those, those algorithms to apply to reserving to ensure that the risk pools are secure. However, how that then gets applied to pricing, there is still uncertainty in terms of how external data sets get used. Now, that's almost a double standard. Um, and I still think, I mean, I still think that there is um, an understanding of why that's the case. But as we want to implement more machine learning techniques, it does become quite difficult to audit or validate those algorithms because there's so much uncertainty within the black box. So the question is how do you take an algorithm that is developed via the best machine learning techniques and then simplify it by taking the, um, the correlations um, and causality elements to build it into a more simple model that might not give you the level of accuracy or the level of um, predictability that you want, but at least it is simple and easy to explain. And these are some of the things that, that are being considered by actuaries, for example, in the US, as well as um, 
by the regulators, and this will continue to develop over time. Then from an education perspective, the next theme. So given that the actuarial syllabus is changing, so we are looking to incorporate uh, more um, elements around how to use data, data governance, um, and, and algorithms and so forth. Given the rate of change of the advancements in the algorithms, technology, software, and so forth, this will continue to be a lifelong learning experience for most of us in this room. Some of our um, lives will be longer than others. So um, I just hope that, um, given that I've still got another 20 years, that by then, <laughs> um, the um, user interfaces of using some of these algorithms are a little bit easier, especially when it comes to validating the statistical appropriateness of them, because right now I think it's, it's still a little bit rudimentary. Um, Excel is still the friend when removing some of the statistical, um, statistical measures. Um, and then, of course, um, we know that there are a number of um, universities looking at introducing additional programs to ensure that we as actuaries are ready um, for the future. We also know that there's collaboration between the various um, societies and, and institutes um, in order to provide various forms of learning. So we know the Society of Actuaries has a program, the Casualty, uh, Casualty Actuarial Society has a program, the French, the Germans. Um, the question though is to assess which is best in order to get the level of learning that we need. And of course, depending on where you are in your career path, as well as what your focus is, one might want to be more technical or less technical. But irrespective of that, where we are managing um, and guiding um, junior actuaries, it's important that we understand the limitations of the various forms of technology and algorithms that get applied. And that ultimately talks to our professionalism because if we can't appropriately justify the use of those algorithms, how do we give appropriate work-based skills training to our juniors? And those are some of the things that I personally think about on an ongoing basis. So given that, um, actuaries are increasingly expected to have the necessary skill sets to prove our algorithms to regulators as, as an example and ensure that they there aren't any discriminatory factors incorporated into our algorithms. And of course, making it more actionable, as well as ensuring that we can drive some of the insights um, to our customers. In addition to that, as we're seeing more multidisciplinary teams evolving um, in, in our actuarial work, it's important to be able to work with non-technical um, professionals and understand the reasoning behind our approaches the decision notification needs to apply within the context that we're looking at. So therefore our ability to still explain why we've chosen the algorithm, why the insights are important. Um, so it goes back to our communications training, um, just at the next level, to be able to assess that the tools we are using are appropriate and meet our professional standards. And then, of course, um, within this space, there will always be some form of um, investigative journalism and whistleblowers in order to 
uncover some of this questionable behaviour and the uses of the data as well as the outcomes that are um, derived, such as the Cambridge Analytica um, election manipulation. The next theme is accountability. So given that we are bound by our code of conduct and need to adhere to our standard of practice and um, qualification, there, there are various elements that of course keep us in tow ensuring that we do the right thing. And because of our professional ob obligations and the fact that we work with these multidisciplinary teams, it's important that we help provide justification and ensure that we fulfill our professional obligation when working with the public, especially when there's emergence of more and more unstructured data, as well as the use of um, data being purchased by various organizations. Being able to explain these insights as well as the unintended consequences will continue to be a fantastic opportunity for us as actuaries, but an important role. To ensure that aspects such as eating ice cream and being, having a shark attack is, doesn't occur and doesn't, doesn't get seen as, as being the case. When looking at the applicability of these standards, <clears throat> the requirement for actuaries to pro provide rationalization as well as explanation in terms of our conclusions will continue to be applied. And that's where our training in terms of professional judgment is critical when using these data sets in our actuarial work. When people ask me um, what I do as an actuary, I think probably the easiest way for me to explain is to connect the dots, and I think many of you will agree with me, is by being able to identify which dots stick together, why they stick together, and why we should care whether or not they stick together. And even if they don't stick together, there must be a reason for that as well, I think is, is incredibly important. And ensuring that we continue to not be blindsided and intimidated by technology and the big black box is, is important to ensure that we continue to be valued as professionals given our professional judgment. So many young actuaries um, who are thinking about whether or not to change careers are saying, should I become an actuary? I mean, Will an actuary or an accountant exist in 10 years, 15 years time, 20 years time? And I mean, that is what professionals are struggling with at the moment. So if you could automate an entire audit function or an entire actuarial function, what is the role of an actuary? Who of you believe that the actuarial profession will be significantly impacted by the use of big data, advanced analytics, and an increase in processing technology in the next 20 years. Does anyone think it won't be? Could you put up your hand? Two people. I would like to get your thoughts on that afterwards. Very small percentage of the crowd. I think it's about 4%, no less, probably about 3% based on the number of people in the room thinking that um, it won't be impacted. So for me, I, I believe that 
Um, the role and the job of what we do as actuaries will change over time. However, I do not believe that the actuary will, will be replaced because you're still going to need someone to make sense. You're still going to need a custodian of the policyholder, um, of the member. And I think that's the role that we play, as well as many of us, we might not see it that way, but our ability to be creative of how data sets can be brought together. However, to apply that in an appropriate as well as professional way is where the opportunity lies. <laughs> the availability of new data will of course test society's willing to, willingness to accept the, the benefits compared to the um, privacy considerations. Now what is important is that there are a number of use cases that I've shown you today where unfortunately there has been a breakdown in trust a breakdown in whether or not technology can be trusted, and a lot of damage will have to be undone um, given that those case studies are out there. But I do believe um, with more responsible implementation of some of these technologies, these large organizations will really go through far more rigorous testing in order to ensure that they don't have another scandal um, that they have to manage. With the proper background and actually can understand and work um, with the multidisciplinary teams within the space of big data, and then of course ensuring that there are elements of professionalism that get upheld um, while providing our subject matter expertise. We are also increasingly expected to ha have the necessary skill sets to prove the algorithms, as I mentioned earlier, specifically to, to regulators, and ensuring that we drive some of these these items going forward. In addition to that, to ensure that where it comes to elements of cybersecurity, which we know are increasingly becoming problematic, that we understand how to protect data in a meaningful way and ensure that we understand the, the elements of concern that will occur where there are breaches of, of cybersecurity. From a privacy perspective, it for me personally, um, I struggle with this because, to be honest with you, receiving information saying, Ashley, um, if you go to um, this particular store, they will have these particular shoes that you absolutely love on sale. Now, the only way that that store will know that I like that particular brand of shoes is based on mining my information. And where I'm getting notification of a sale, I'll be very happy to know about that. But knowing um, other elements of, um, of my life, I might not be comfortable with. And because of that, I, I do struggle to, to see how we find that balance. Because where society gets benefit from the information being shared, I think they're quite open to it. But where they feel as though Big Brother is watching, there is less willingness to share information. And, and these are some of the aspects that we, we do need to think about. In addition to hoarding data. So I don't know um, how many of you have data sets that you've kept for years and years and years on all kinds of hard drives somewhere, and please don't nod, I don't want to know who that is. <laughs> but I mean, this is a serious concern because there may be a breach of data. So understanding how data is stored, compiled, and used, 
and how that might violate privacy in future periods needs to be understood. In addition, the way in which the data gets collected is important um, for how it gets used in the future. So someone may collect a certain set of data, but if that gets used to unfairly discriminate against a population group or individual in the future, um, that cannot be. And this is where it's important that data privacy standards get maintained and consideration be, um, be taken um, into account as to how data gets kept, stored and utilised over time. The next case study is my health record. So again, you can see a number of paper clippings, very, uh, lots of concern around how the my, uh, my Health data record would influence privacy concerns um, by the broader population. So the My Health record, um, which was something that we're looking to implement in Australia, which is a, basically a digital health record, which stores data um, and allows it to be shared between uh, medical providers. There were great concerns in July 2018 um, given the privacy framework and how it can be used to be shared with drug companies, insurance companies, etc. And also concerned that this is something similar to a failed system that was applied in the UK according to the feedback that was provided by the Australian citizens. So these are some of the elements that um, we need to think about is that prior experience of a poor system, the society as a whole being concerned about how their data will be used and having the inability to delete records um, and how they may be discriminated against is of course of great concern and these are some of the elements we need to think about going forward. So. When it comes to some of the pitfalls and shortcomings of big data, I think I've touched on some of this already. Um, and it really incorporates all the themes we've spoken about, which is to ensure that we understand the data that's being used, we understand the data that has been used to train our models, and to ensure that the data that is being used is not being used for an inappropriate purpose, especially where unstructured data such as those from surveys are being used and there's certain elements of inherent bias within the data. One needs to understand that, the limitations of it, the limitation of how the, gener the, the data gets generated due to changes in processing, etc. All these elements must be considered when implementing various big data um, projects, but also considerations of inaccuracies in the data and how that may change outcomes or analogies that get made or decisions that may influence the broader population base or citizens. The impact, as we know, of this inaccurate or incomplete data is, is incredibly significant in terms of lost opportunity for organisations, um, predicting inaccurate outcomes, changing business models that don't make sense, or else um, using incorrect micro-segmentation in terms of applying that to, your, uh, to the outcome that you're looking to, to drive. And I mean, there are so many reasons for bad data. I think it is it is quite silly that there are only six here. I think, I think there would probably need to be six volumes of why there's bad data. But these are just 
um, some high-level items from incomplete data, inaccurate data, changes in circumstances, um, bias being included in the sample, relying on self-reported data, incorrect models, um, as well as given that we are all influenced by our most recent experience, our ability to appropriately provide comment, especially when it comes to our customer experience, um, it's, it's really important to understand how behavioral science influences our perception at that particular point in time. One of the very interesting um, experiences I've had is um, in, in the telcos where I've done quite a bit of work in network experience. So we've all had a situation we were on the call and the call keeps on dropping, right? We are very unhappy when that happens. Um, or where we have a challenge with our bill, we'll phone in and we'll be quite annoyed. Now, um, the way in which it's measured is our net promoter scores. How is our net promoter scores for me as a subscriber within that particular environment. Now, depending on when the survey gets conducted will influence my results as to whether or not I'm happy or unhappy. And if you then use that survey produced information and align it with um, how my network performance is in terms of drop calls, your results may be um, indirectly correlated. So understanding those elements of how data is collected and, and how it actually gets addressed is incredibly important because otherwise the synopsis that could be made is that I'm incredibly happy when my calls drop all the time, which we know is just not true. So understanding those elements and self-reporting information and how those surveys get run are incredibly important. Then, um, in summary, just um, some important considerations is to know the data sources, know how they get produced, know the elements of bias, know your training sets, know who is included in your data, know if there are certain parts of your population that aren't covered. Explore the data yourself. Um, don't just stick it into a machine. <laughs> know what you're looking at. Know the, where things just don't make sense. Um, keep your expectations for your big data in check. If every time I eat an ice cream and I don't get bitten by a shark, I should start questioning whether or not that applies. Basic things like that need to be considered. But then also to use and draw conclusions um, <clears throat> in terms of where there have been failures and ensure that that doesn't happen to us. Because every one of those failures influences the development and enhancement of AI and the use of big data in the future. It's also important that when making decisions, it is important that it's informative. However, understand the limitations of the data as well as the way in which it gets applied. One of the most um, challenging things for me is when fitting algorithms and the advancements in technology and software, it's very easy to use a form of technology and just link it to a data set and run a whole bunch of algorithms. But if we don't understand the limitations of those particular algorithms, it becomes very difficult to ascertain whether or not our results are valid or appropriate. And those are some of the responsibilities we need to think about. But in this fast moving world of data being 
produced every single microsecond, more than we know what to do with, we need to be nimble and responsive as to how we use it. And then, of course, if we're going to be using customers' information, if you can record the, um, reward them for collecting their data that is accurate and appropriate, I believe that there's a massive advantage for all parts of society and all sectors to get more value out of the data we collect, as well as how we apply that in solving some of our social challenges we have as a country and as a continent. Thank you very much. Excellent. So um, I think we have a few minutes for, for questions. Are there, are there any questions? All good? So we can make up some time then, given that I ran over. <laughs>